Um, just a great time just to join our voices together, isn't it? Kind of brings it back to another time era. Let's go ahead and pray before we look into God's word. Father, we just thank you for so many songs that have been written over the years, over the decades, over the centuries that glorify you. And you are worth every one of them and even more. And so, Lord, we thank you for those who have that talent. We thank you for just the gift of songs and singing. And we pray that that would be music to your ears and that uh, our time this morning in your word would please you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever resisted the Holy Spirit? Some of you may be thinking, yes, I believe I have. And others may be thinking, well, I'm not sure. I may have. And some may be thinking, how do I know? How can you tell? What is resisting the Holy Spirit? Is it a feeling like God is telling you to do something, but you're too scared to do it so you don't? Is that what resisting the Holy Spirit is? Or could it be feeling like God wants you to do something, but you aren't sure that it is God behind that feeling, and later you want to kick yourself because you didn't do it, and you thought, I should have. Now, those can be difficult feelings, can't they? But this morning, we are going to be looking at a very clear case of resisting the Holy Spirit. And maybe that clear case can kind of give us a, a foundational you know, point to work off of as we talk about resisting the Holy Spirit. We're going to be in the book of Acts this morning. And we're going to be reading about a very remarkable man from the first century church. Uh, just this bold, brave Christian man. He runs into trouble with the Jewish religious leaders. And they accuse him of some very serious sins. They accuse him of blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses, blaspheming the temple. And they ask him to respond to those accusations because he's standing there before them and he's supposed to answer to them. So I'd like you to look with me as we look into chapter 6 of Acts and verses 8 through 15. We're going to be reading a lot of verses this morning because it's a long passage. But it says, Now Stephen a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. This is the early church. Opposition arose, however, from, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. That would be against the law and against the temple. 
So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. And that would be God and Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now we know from our study of the book of Acts so far that the Jewish religious leaders, the religious authorities at this time were the same ones who rejected and condemned Jesus. So that already tells us quite a bit about who Stephen was up against. And we know that the accusation of Jesus destroying the temple and even changing the, custom, the customs of Moses were not really valid accusations because Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And so, you know, they were taking that in a literal meeting that he, would, he was threatening to take down the temple. But now we're going to look at Stephen's answer to the court's charges. But his answer will be a bit different than a person might expect. But his answer will also be extremely effective. And in his answer, we're going to get a major lesson on the workings of God. You know, it's so important as we read through the Bible, I've been, been you know, coming to this point more and more over these last few years. People are getting disappointed with God today. And they're walking away from the faith. And I believe it's because they don't really look closely enough into the Bible to see how God works. And they expect God to work in a certain way, but if you go through the scriptures, he doesn't work the way that they're expecting very often. His ways are not our ways. But <clears throat> we'll see that as we go. So I want you to look at chapter 7 of Acts in the first eight verses. We're continuing on. The high priest asks Stephen, are these charges true? You know, the blasphemy against God and Moses. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. That was Ur of the Chaldeans. Before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, the promised land. He gave him no inheritance here. So here's Abraham. He gets to that land. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough to set his foot on, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. 
For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So God calls Abraham to this promised land, and when he gets there, he doesn't have anything to even set his foot on that he owns. He owns none of it. And God tells him that his descendants would possess the land, but not until his descendants live as foreigners in a country not their own, and they'll even become slaves, and they'll be there for 400 years total. And we know that's in Egypt, right? He says, then they will come and worship him in that land, and God seals the promise through the, through the covenant of circumcision. And so that was the Jewish covenant with God. It was through circumcision of each male. And eventually, we see Jacob become the father of the patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? As Jacob goes and he has his two wives, and they bear all these children, and those 12 sons, well, 12 of those sons become the, the um, patriarchs of Israel. And they are the leaders of the tribes of Israel. So... If you think about this so far, God is working out his promise, but it probably isn't in any way that we would have want a promise worked out or that somebody would have thought that God would work out the promise. I mean, it took generations to work out this promise. And he said 400 years that they would stay in the land. So this is the way God works a lot, depending upon the circumstance and he works through generations, and he works through hundreds of years. And see, oftentimes we get you know, impatient with God, and we think it ought to happen right now. But God, that isn't the way God usually works. He works in all different kinds of ways. Sometimes he does answer immediately, and many, many times he doesn't. So <clears throat> that's what we have to be used to if we're following the God of the Bible. But now Stephen moves on to the sons of Jacob, the patriarchs of the nation. And in verses 9 through 16, it says, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food, the patriarchs. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. 
Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. <clears throat> so Stephen tells, he's, he's standing before this tribunal, and he tells of how the brothers, the patriarchs, reject Joseph as their leader. And in this way, during that time, they are rejecting the will of God. And this is Stephen's major point. He is showing that throughout Israel's history, you have this ongoing resistance against the will of God. And as difficult as it would have been for them, you know, as the brothers of Joseph, he was almost the youngest one, right? And as difficult as it would have been for them, you know, to think that he was going to be the ruler, they should not have turned against him, should they? Because his father was choosing him. His father gave him that coat that was showing that he was going to be the one that was going to take over. And they didn't like that, and so they rejected that. Their fa his father was giving him special honor, and even if it seemed unfair, they should have honored their father. And you know, when you're right there in the, in the uh, circumstance, when you're right there as it is happening, you could see that and see that maybe this is so unfair. I mean, he's almost the youngest son. And what has he done? And why does, why, why does father pick him? But you see, if they would have honored their father, it, they would have seen later how important that was. And in this, we see that Joseph was God's choice. If they would have accepted their father's actions toward Joseph, his choice of Joseph, they would have been working with God and not against him, and they would have seen things work out for the best in spite of their brother. And clearly Joseph was the right one to endure those years of slavery, those years of serving in the house, in order to become eventually the prime minister of Egypt and rescue his family. And so now we want to see God continue to work in Egypt as we look at verses 17 through 29. Jo uh, Stephen is telling all this to the tribunal in order to show them what, what is happening in their situation and how they should be reacting. 17 through 29. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt, you know, way past Joseph's time. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die, kill all the male babies, remember? At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, 
He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler over us or judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Now, isn't that amazing how God takes situations so bleak and then turns them into major parts of his plan? I mean, situations that you see no good in and you think they ruin everything, and God has a plan for them. You have this king in Egypt that turns against the Hebrew people. He makes life extremely miserable for them. He even wants to have all the baby boys killed. He wants to decimate or at least stop the Hebrews from becoming any stronger. You know, he fears them that they could turn against his kingdom at some point. And isn't it amazing how God places Moses into an environment that will allow him to become a highly educated and powerful leader? I mean, you put all this together, you, you, you can't even think of putting all this together like this. And Moses' destiny was infanticide, but God's plan for him was world leader. But as Moses goes out and tries to connect with his people, you know, at 40 years of age, they reject him. He even runs to avoid being killed. And of course, in Moses' mind, he's never coming back. But Stephen, as he gives this report, he's showing again how the Israelites are working against God by rejecting God's chosen leader. They always seem to be working contrary to God's plan. That's what Stephen is saying before the high court. But now, 40 years later, Moses receives another visit. Look with me at verses 30 to 43. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? (laughs) He's pointing out here how they they reject God's will, uh, the Holy Spirit. 
He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. Stephen is showing how, how much Moses, you know, just really shepherded the, the whole nation. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. But again, they wouldn't follow the leader. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? God's questioning their faithfulness, isn't he? You have taken up the, the tabernacle of Molech, and the star of your god, Rephon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. <clears throat> now, Stephen, as he's talking to the high court there, the Jewish high court, he talks about God sending Moses back to Egypt to free his people. And he says, this is the same Moses that they said to earlier, who made you ruler and judge? <laughs> and this Moses, he did go back and he did lead them out of Egypt. And look at what you know people do when God first starts his plan and how people don't trust him. And it says that Moses performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea. And then for 40 years in the wilderness, who made you ruler? Stephen keeps reminding them that Moses, who gave them their freedom and took them to their homeland, was the same one that they rejected, the same one that they rebelled against, the same one that they refused to obey God to follow. And you know, isn't it also frustrating when children, our children resist trying to do something or learn something that you know will be a great help to them. You know all children go through that, don't they? At least all of ours did. <laughs> Except Brand. <clears throat> <laughs> but it's just childish immaturity, isn't it? It's this lack of wisdom to trust someone who can really help. Well, you know, Stephen, he's, he's speaking before this Jewish high court, and he's basically telling them the same thing. That's who they are. They're not trusting in God, who can really help them, who has love for them. And in the spiritual realm, you know, he's telling them basically they are selfish, short-sighted children. 
only interested in maintaining their power, only interested in making certain things continue in the way that serves them or lifts them up or brings them, you know, glory. And looking at true believers, you know, as these, as these people sitting on the council, they're looking at these true believers, these humble followers of Christ, as though they were the brainless ones or they were the brainwashed ones. And it really is the evil in their hearts that turns them against the ways of God, isn't it? I mean, they don't think in ways like God, uh, the ways that God truly is. They have all these <clears throat> thoughts, these wrong thoughts about God's ways and who God is and what he can do and what he will do. And now, in verses 44 to 50, Stephen tries to show them how that even though the temple is important and should be treated respectfully, it really isn't the end all in the worship of God. Because there were so many years they didn't even have a temple. So look at 44 through 50. Stephen's just trying to show them what is the bottom line truth. He says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. So they didn't even have a temple. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. So for a long time, even in the land, they didn't have a temple. Who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, David wanted to build a temple. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You know, the temple was and is to be respected, right? But much more important is to follow the ways of the Lord. You know, it does no good to revere the building and then go on living a selfish, power-seeking life. And that's the way that the Jewish religious leaders were. And now, as we're nearing the end here, Stephen's going to let loose. Verses 51 through 53. He's been building up, you know, and they've got him, and they, you, we know what they want to do with him. He says, and, and I think this is the spirit speaking through Stephen. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And there it is, resisting the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. <clears throat> so, 
Stephen calls their actions resisting the Holy Spirit. A little different than what we were kind of talking about at the very beginning, isn't it? Their resistance is really self-centeredness. It's refusal to do what they know is right. It's choosing to consciously go against God's ways. It's choosing selfishness and power-grabbing over thinking of others. It's choosing sinfulness over godliness. It's consciously choosing to not follow God when we know actually which way is the right way. And now we end another act of resistance of the Holy Spirit, and it falls right in line with the reputation of the enemies of God. It's in verses 54 through 60. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. If they would have been following the Spirit of God, not resisting, they would have repented, right? This just drove them deeper into their hatred. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. As I was reading this, looking at this, I mean, just imagine that if you are in that position, maybe, you know, you die for the Lord or whatever, and you actually see the face of Jesus. Wouldn't that be something? Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And I'm sure that the Spirit, he was... He was speaking according to what the Spirit was giving him. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. And dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Resisting the Holy Spirit, not so much choosing right or left, or choosing this time or that time, it's choosing right or wrong over wrong. And, you know, Stephen, you you would wonder, well, why why didn't God keep him alive to, you know, uh, do so much more? Because if if you read earlier, he's doing so much more in the church. And of course, he's out there speaking the word of God and he's bringing people to Christ. But this is the way God chose to use him. He gave his life. And so he's encouraged so many people throughout the centuries. And he was the man for this. And this is the way God works. And we can't probably even, like, work it out on paper of why this would be the best way to use Stephen. You know, but God knows. He knows way beyond what we know. And so I think in today's world, 
<clears throat> when we have so many people just walking away from God because they just can't put things together. We just have to realize that God's ways are so far above our ways, and his word is so trustworthy. And even though we can't understand all of it all the time, we can look back and see how things happen according to God's word and how he worked everything out, just the perfect timing, even though it wasn't convenient for everybody. <laughs> it was what God planned to do so that he would get what he needed in order to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And so my encouragement is that we, as we read our scriptures, as we see things, as we see God doing things in our lives, to just realize that God sometimes does things so differently and, and so different timing than we would imagine. But if we're true to him and our hearts are true to him, he will, just, he will keep us and take us in the right direction and at the right timing. And we can just wait for him. And it's going to be different for everybody. Someone's going to get something right away, and we may have to wait years, or vice versa. But we just can't judge according to what God does with different people. We just judge according to the word of God and, and how he does things as we, we know he does. So let's be encouraged by Stephen. Let's don't resist the Holy Spirit, but let's do what God tells us to do and let's encourage one another in that direction and help those who may be trying to start walking away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing story. It looks maybe not right to us that Stephen would die at this point. He, has, he gave so much. But also, Lord, we know as we keep on reading that this incident caused a lot of movement in the church, and we'll see that. And we know that you are wise beyond all imagination, and you do things in your timing, and it's all going to come out to the best in the end. We thank you for the way that you allowed us into your covenant through the death of Christ and through faith in him. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.